Today's readings are Job 5.2, Proverbs 19.11, and Hebrews 12.14-15. They can be found on pages 469, 600, and 1116 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word, Job 5.2. Resentment kills a fool, and envy slays the simple. Proverbs 19, verse 11. A person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. Let's take a minute to pray as we get into this message today. Our gracious God, as we come together into this room, some of us come with heavy hearts in their sadness or difficulty that we've had to face or that has been brought back up to the surface. And we're processing that and looking for comfort, looking for you to be good. Others of us come with questions and looking for answers. Some of us come and we're scared. We're fearful about the future or about what we're going through right now. And others, we come very thankful. As if you've, there's a sense that you've touched our lives and you've blessed us. And you seem very good. God, whether we come believing that or, or struggling with the evil and difficulty of this world, we're all in the same boat. We're all more of a mess than we care to admit. Teach us through your grace now, the grace that sees us in our mess, in all of our failure and all of our beauty, all of our ruin and all of our possibility. You see all of it, and you move, us, move towards us with your grace, and we pray that you do so again now that we may latch on to this grace that you have provided us in Jesus Christ and, it will, and that it may change our lives as it moves through our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. When, when children are really young, they're, they're not able to resent. Um, I didn't read this in some you know, developmental book for children or anything like that. I just have four children, so I'm, I can write the books at this point if I want to. And, no, but so I, I, I don't know. You could fact-check me on this, but my, you know, my um, layman's observation is that a three-year-old on the playground um, gets mad. They have the capacity for anger, right? And, um, you know, give me back my toy, and um, you're not letting me have a turn, and that's mine, and there's the flare-up of anger, uh, but they don't hang on to it. And the next day when they come to the park, remember that yesterday you took my toy twice, and so today I'm going to be extra, you know, I'm going to hold it from you. They, real young like that, they don't, they don't have that capacity yet. In fact, it seems like they pretty much five, ten minutes later, usually, it's, what do they say, water under a bridge. Resentment. Resentment's an interesting thing. We grow a little older, and I can see this in kids who... Kids get old enough to where they can hold a grudge over the summer from kids who were mean to them on the playground last year, right? So you get a little older, you get a little more emotionally complex, you get a more sophisticated view of time, 
and um, your sense of justice kind of gets refined, and all those things together make us experts in resentment. Resentment, it's a part of human life. Resentment is when you... Here's a few different phrases to help get underneath what resentment is. Resentment is um, when I hold it against you. That's one phrase we use. Or we say, jokingly, I won't hold it against you. Resentment is holding it against you. Another way to talk about it is harboring bitterness. I'm harboring bitterness. Uh, We talk about hanging on to a grudge. Or we, we, we keep score in relationships. Or another way of saying kind of the same thing is we keep a record of wrongs. You know what? In, the interesting thing about this is we think about um, you know, how we're going to connect with God over this topic, what we're going to learn from God. All of those things I just mentioned, God ref- has refused to do with us. All of those things, every single way that I just talked about resentment is something God has just shown us over and over again in the story of Scripture that he won't do. And that's why when we get to, uh, into the New Testament, there's a, a teaching about the kind of love that flows out of knowing God. And you hear it at weddings. Have you heard this passage? How does it start? Does anybody want to just guess what I'm talking about? How does this passage you always hear at weddings, how does it start? Love is patient. Yeah, and one of my favorite parts about that, because it actually does, you know, for me, end up applying in marriage and in marriages. Um, even though First Corinthians thirteen isn't talking about marriage, it's just talking about the unique kind of Christian love that flows out of knowing God. But one of the most interesting parts for me is, love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no records of wrongs, and yet we find ourselves doing it all the time. So what are we going to do? Um, let's look at this. Let's look at three aspects of resentment in terms of how do we how do we understand it? How do we get out of it? Um, let's see the danger in resentment. Let's become familiar with the mechanics of it. Secondly, and thirdly, we need to allow the gospel to expel it from our life. First of all, you got to see the danger of it. This is this is actually you see it in Job, or yeah, is it the Job passage? Yeah, the Job five verse two as one of Job's friends is trying to counsel him in dealing with the evil and the terrible things that have happened in Job's life. life. And he's, he says, resentment kills a fool. Resentment kills. Right there is the, basically the danger of resentment. Us, elucidated for us just very simply. Resentment kills. You want an even more graphic and raw picture of it? You go into... Um, you go into the poet, Stephen Crane, whose quote was in the worship guide. I don't know if you're one of those, you look at the reflections when you walk in before the worship service. This is one that, I'm, it, there's a good chance it just sort of set you on edge. It is just that raw and almost confusing if you don't understand why I would put that in there. He's giving us a picture of resentment. He says, in the desert I saw a creature, naked, bestial, who, squatting upon the ground, held his heart in his hand and ate of it. I said, is it good, friend? It is bitter. Bitter, he answered. But I like it because it is bitter. 
and because it is my heart. I, I never know if I want to cry or laugh at the end of that. It's just, wow. I like it because it is bitter and because it is my heart. It's a picture of actually the, the sort of spoiling and corrosion that happens inside yourself. You actually are changed and corroded internally when hanging on to resentment and bitterness. It's a great picture. Another, another very vivid way of talking about it I found in uh, this week is I was reading a chapter on forgiveness by Lewis Smedes, a great teacher and theologian who writes this, unrelieved resentment is like a videotape inside your soul, playing its tormenting reruns of the rotten things somebody did to you, playing it over and over, wrenching your soul tighter every time it plays. You get hooked into it. You become a hardcore addict and you cannot leave it alone. Your resentment has you shackled to the everlasting pain of a raging memory. It's the danger of resentment. And, uh, and we have to see the danger of it. Have you seen the danger of your resentment? Are you, are you cognizant of how dangerous and how troubling it is? And how really, in the end, when you're anger, angry and you take out revenge, you're taking it out against someone else. When you're angry and you resent, you're taking it out on yourself. And uh, Nancy, Nancy Landrum writes in her blog, as she begins to notice this in herself, she tells this story. My beloved son Stephen was one of my most valuable life teachers. Within a few clean, with only a few clean breaks, from the age of 15 until he died just before his 30th birthday, he was an addict. The last two, uh, two and one half years he lived with us due to his failing heart. Living with an addict is crazy making. Normal rules of behavior and interaction don't apply. Addicts can't keep promises. She says, there were only a few basic rules when Steve came home at the age of 27. Two of them were to clean his room and to do his laundry once per week. He'd promise it wouldn't happen. Over and over again, the room stank, his clothes were dirty, between that and the kitchen messes and the trash and the garbage, it felt like my clean, orderly home was turning into a pigsty. I was angry. I yelled. I complained, berated. He felt sorry, guilty, repentant, but didn't change. One day I realized that the reason I was so resentful was because if he couldn't or wouldn't change, I had to. I could live in this perpetual state of resentment, or I could change. The choice was mine. We've got to get to a point with resentment where we kind of see it for what it is. We see it for how it's corroding us and destroying us inwardly so that we want badly enough to get rid of it. It's also helpful in terms of once you want to get rid of it, it's helpful to understand the mechanics of it. What is going on with resentment? What is it? So secondly, you've got to become familiar with the mechanics of resentment. Um, you've got to puzzle over it and dig deep into it and figure out what, what, what is this? What is this beast? What's the nature of it? Um, Hannah Harrington's novel, Saving June, includes this reflection and quote on resentment. She says, it always struck me in the years after how bizarre it was how two people could look at one another with such tenderness and complete love and how quickly that could dissolve into nothing but bitterness. She's, in that, that quote is somebody beginning to marvel over and wonder and be curious about the mechanics of resentment. 
one of the figures of speech, I think, that helps understand, helps sort of crack it open and, and understand the mechanics of resentment is when people talk about burying the hatchet. Have you heard of this? You bury the hatchet, right? Have you ever thought about what that means? You know, let's, let's just bury the hatchet. I like it because it opens up resentment because resentment is when you're, you're holding on to something, you're carrying something, you're gripping, you know, your hand on the hatchet. And the only way out, really, is to eventually find a way to release. Find a way to release this thing you're hanging on to and put it in its proper place. Bury it. Get it taken care of. Bury the hatchet. Psalm 19.11. It's just, this is just basic wisdom. A person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense to release, to let go, to find a way to dispose of it. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. And if you've ever tried, if you've ever dealt with being resentful and you maybe have something in your life right now that has sort of a, a, a little story of resentment in your life, there's, there's really you end up with only two options. That blog post that I was just reading basically got to it. I could either let go or I could hold it in and wait. You know, basically, really, option one is to hold it in and to just kind of wait. You're waiting for the world out there to bring that justice that you're so mad about, right? You're waiting for that person or that group or that thing um, to balance the scales back into place. You were passed over for a promotion, and you've been so dedicated You've been so dedicated to the company, the agency, the firm, whatever it is. You've been so dedicated, and yet they, they gave the promotion to that younger person who's perceived to have more of the technological skills or awareness. Resentment. You hang on to it. The guy that you adore is showing interest in your best friend or your sister, and you hang on to it. Your parents did things as you were growing up that you now realize affected you and you actually carry the results of that still today and you're hanging on to that bitterness. You have a sibling who gets special treatment. Or your spouse takes it for granted that you're, you're just always going to be there to come through and, you know, clean up the kitchen, right? Or, or pick up their messes. And you hang on to it and you resent it. Are you going to wait around for the world out there to come back to you and to approach you and to say, I'm sorry, I see what's wrong, let's balance the scales, let's give you everything you deserve? If I, could, you know, if I would ask all of you, and you were honest with me, you'd probably only find maybe one or two examples in this room of someone who can say, you know, that actually happened to me. I was sitting around bitter, and I was waiting, and they just came, and it's, just, it's all good now. <laughs> maybe there wouldn't be any examples if your laughter has anything to say about it. But what's the other option then? What is the other option? To find a way to release, to find a way to let go. Now, we're all still just in this world of kind of wisdom, common sense wisdom as we think about these things. All of these observations so far, you can just find out there in the world, you can discover as you sit reflectively on a mountain. And, and one more to just add on to that before we move to the third point, is that if you want to begin that step because, because resentment really kind of 
cages you in over time. It's really hard to break out of it. And if you want to break out of it, one step is, really I think the only step to begin, is to begin to look for one second even at your own self in the equation. Begin to look critically. If nothing, you can maybe find some flaw in how you've handled the relationship, something you did that led up to the issue. If you can find anything to fixate on, even if it's just your own resentment and you say, my resentment itself in reaction to this injustice, my resentment itself has created some new wreckage that I need to own. If you can just somehow even just see your resentment as a problem, suddenly you're breaking free of it because you've turned your eyes away from that videotape playing over and over and you're beginning the road. But I would, I would doubt how far you get down that road without this last point, and that is that you let the gospel expel it. You've got to see the danger and resentment. You've got to understand the mechanics of it. You've got to let the gospel expel it. When you look at this passage that we closed with in Hebrews, this is advice to a Christian community. This is, hey, this is how we can consider our community operating and functioning. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Don't fall short of the grace of God. I find that an amazing statement. Because how most of us walking in here this morning would, would expect that phrase to finish would be like this. Make sure that no one falls short of the rules of God. Make sure that no one falls short of the principles of Christian obedience. Make sure that no one falls short of the law of God. And what does it say? Don't fall short of the grace of God? There's, there's, a, um, there's something of the grace of God, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ that you can, you can live up to and live into to its fullest. Don't fall short of that, the writer says. What's going on? Well, Christians, um, in terms of resentment, this is sort of the Christian summary of resentment, of where we get into the gospel with resentment. Because the, the Christian, if really connecting with the story of Jesus Christ, basically believes this every day. We believe that we are daily offending an unresentful God. We are daily, in many, 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 many ways, offending an unresentful God. Let's get at it this way, maybe through human relationships. If I do something to you and, you, and you, kind of, you take it personally and you see some injustice in it and you start to resent, start to get bitter towards me, um, one of the things that you'll do, because we always do this, is you'll imagine some of my motives that took place. You'll, you'll, you'll peel back the layers in your imagination of what was going on in me. And you'll imagine some selfishness and you'll imagine some things, but you won't be able to actually see all the way. You won't be able to see everything and all of my inner motives. And in a sense, I would actually prefer, if I given the choice, to say, hey, look at all my motives. I didn't intend that. I would rather just say, imagine what you want. <laughs> I don't want you to look inside and see all my selfish motives, right? I don't want you to peer in and see all of it. God, in the scriptures, we read, 
especially in Psalm 139, God peers in and sees all of our motives. He sees all of it. He sees everything. He knows you completely. He sees the full extent of your selfishness, the full extent of the injustice of your behavior towards Him. We read in Psalm 139, you have searched me and you know me. Let me just hit a, hit a couple little points here. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways before a word is on my tongue. You, Lord, know it completely. Um, so we can't, we can't see, I can't see your motives and you can't see all of mine completely, and yet we're still full of resentment with just the little things we can imagine. God can see all of your motives, all of your selfishness, and he has chosen to find a way to not ever have to resent the track record of injustice that we, we bring into our relationship with him. So, that, so much so that Jesus, when he is on the cross, it is God coming as a sort of resentment solution. It is God coming, and, and when Jesus is on the cross, he's, he's nailed up there, and he's looking out, and he sees all of these people. He sees the, the Pharisees and the chief priests, and they've actually they've been really bitter, and there's layers of evil and injustice there. that He can see them all as they've plotted to get them up, hung up there. There's other people who are just the... The, um, the bouncers, in a sense. They're the ones that just just doing what they're told and they just get them up there on the cross and their crowd control, the centurions, the soldiers. And then there's, there's actually people out there who are just kind of, they've sort of got swept up in it, they're a bit naive, and they've been somehow either paid or convinced to say, crucify him at just the right time. So you've got some of those, you know, kind of guilty, but sort of just got swept up in it. And then you've got his own followers at a distance looking on who completely deserted him. He's looking out and he's seeing all these people, and probably just other people who are there for the show. He's looking out and he sees it all. And the words off his mouth, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Have you ever been in a place where your resentment flares up because somebody, you already have this sort of this record in your mind of a couple of occurrences of this, and then now you're in a situation again, and there's that same behavior once again. And it just kind of flares up. It it's, seems almost near impossible for us when we're in that kind of moment to just release and forget, forgive and find our way out of it. I mean, that's the most intense moment. And that's the moment when Jesus, the Son of God, says, Father, forgive them. Jesus is praying on our behalf to end any resentment of God towards us forever. In fact, that's why he's on the cross. So the Christian is someone who who's, finds transformation. And they find, you find it when, when, you, when you finally realize that you give God plenty of reasons to resent you. And yet you consistently find yourself welcomed home like a true child of God. His loving arms wrapped around you and welcomed home. You give God so much to resent, and yet that's the welcome you receive. 
So you live in this incredible certainty of the grace of God that's been already accomplished for you. It's an amazing truth. It's an amazing certainty. It's a foundation for you to live from. And what it does is, it, is when you know it and when you experience it, it moves out of where you possess it inside and it pushes off resentment so much so that you can even, if you know it well and if you're connected well to God's grace, you can end resentment before it even starts. At, at our best moments as Christians, that's possible. I don't know how often I do that, but that's, that's the idea. That's how great it is. It expels from the inside out. Every other thing you might read about resentment is going to tell you to do something that's outside in. Here's some steps you can take to try to, like, you know, to get into the resentment and kind of pull it out. The gospel pushes it out because the gospel takes a central part in your life. It's a certainty. You have no, nothing to be insecure about in life. And what are we doing when we're being resentful? But we're being like little children in the sandbox, you know, being insecure. I mean, if you take that, I won't have enough. I won't have it anymore. I'll never get it back. Resentment has an insecurity sort of at its root, and the gospel has a a deep certainty and confidence at its root that there's nothing you have important that can get lost anymore. So if you're walking around with resentment, um, and you're a Christian, you're, you're kind of actually a, you're actually a walking, I don't mean to be mean, but, but this is true. If, if you're a Christian and you're walking around with, with resentment, you are a walking argument that the Christian faith is not true. <laughs> Think about it that way. You're a walking argument against the power of the gospel. Um, and there's, so there's kind of like two reasons why. There's a practical reason, there's a gospel reason why you might want to Get rid of resentment in your life. And the practical one we all can see, and we, we saw it already in this message at the beginning, is that it's, it's going to hurt you, it's going to ruin you, it's going to corrode your heart if you hang on to it. So reason number one, it's good for you to release resentment to find a way to forgive. But rule number two, or not rule number two, uh, option number two for a reason why you want to get rid of resentment is because you want to be a walking argument for the grace of God, that there is a very real God whom you've met and who is astonishingly unresentful in his relationship with you. There is, friends, there is, a, there is a, an experience and an encounter of God at the heart of the Christian faith that moves out against resentment and moves forth with forgiveness. It's, it's not something you do. It's not steps you can take. It's something you encounter and you receive and then it moves out once you've received it into your relationships. Let me close with just two brief pictures of it. One is a story. One is a poem. I think a, a sermon is really in a sweet spot when it ends with a poem. So here's the story. Corey Ten Boom writes in The Hiding Place. So she's going around speaking after World War II, and she was, um, she's Jewish, and she was um, stowed away and actually survived, but saw all kinds of other people die in concentration camps. She says, it was at a church service in Munich that I saw him. She's going around talking about forgiveness. In a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing. 
he came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fräulein, he said, to think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often to the people in Blumendahl, the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. Notice the nature of that prayer. Forgive me is the first part of it. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not our forgiveness any more than our goodness that the world's healing hinges on, but his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. You see how she's reaching into the forgiveness of God as her hope? George MacDonald, in his book, Diary of an Old Soul, writes poem after poem, one for every day of the year. And here's his prayer, his prayerful poem about resentment. Keep me from wrath. Let it seem ever so right. My wrath will never work thy righteousness. Up, up the hill to the whiter than snow shine. Help me to climb and dwell in pardon's light. I must be pure as thou or even less than thy design of me. Therefore, incline my heart to take man's wrongs as thou hast taken mine. Let us pray. Gracious God, would you help us? As these last two examples show, those who wish to have the gospel come alive in our lives, we actually find it not by drumming up the ability, but by just asking for it, by asking to be connected in an authentic way to your forgiveness, which we need so dearly. Would you help us not to live like insecure children on the playground, but help us to live like adopted princes and princesses, adopted by the king with nothing left in the world to be insecure about. Help us to know that's true about us and to move out into this world with the kind of grace that follows from that identity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.